Welcome to The Returning Citizen. The Returning Citizen helps people coming out of prison and their families by sharing success stories, connecting available resources, and building supportive community. So first and foremost, we want to remind our listeners that the United States has the highest rate of incarceration of any country on earth. Most of these folks return home as our neighbors, thousands per year uh, in Detroit alone. And we believe that everybody wins when we help these returning citizens be successful. So today we've got the lovely Imani Mixon back in the studio co-hosting our podcast today. I'm uh, Jacob Smith and we've got a very exciting guest joining us, Phil Telfian, the executive director for Equal Justice Under Law, which is a national civil rights organization based in Washington, D.C., so Equal Justice Under Law recently filed a class action lawsuit uh, just this past th- Thursday. Is that correct, Phil? That's exactly right. All right. So, yep. So class action lawsuit against uh, Michigan Secretary of State Ruth Johnson uh, for suspending driver's licenses of people who are too poor to pay debts that they owe the state for traffic violations or court costs. The conversation is particularly pertinent to our community as uh, the two named plaintiffs in the case are both residents of Detroit. So today we're going to be essentially discussing the work that Equal Justice Under Law is doing, as well as this particular case, how it affects the Detroit community, as well as uh, tying it in to the uh, returning citizen community as well to round things out. Um, So first and foremost, just some quick background about Equal Justice Under Law as an organization, and I'll let Phil uh, elaborate here. The organization, as I understand it, is specifically dedicated towards fighting on behalf of laws that disproportionately are unfair to poor people. Am I understanding that correctly, Phil? Yes, we challenge wealth-based discrimination. In other words, the way people who are poor are penalized just because they're poor. Got it. In what ways, uh, broadly speaking, do we see wealth-based discrimination in the criminal justice system? That's such a good question, Jacob. And unfortunately, there are so many different ways. The criminal justice system is founded on the idea of equality under the law And yet we all know this is the furthest thing from our reality. From the beginning of the criminal process to the end, there's inequality throughout. You see it in policing practices. Uh, Poor neighborhoods are often over-policed much more than wealthier neighborhoods, even though studies show certain crimes are actually more common in the wealthier neighborhoods. You see it in terms of appointment of counsel. In so many places, the public defender system is far worse than what someone could afford for a private attorney. You see it in pretrial bail. Um, When two people are arrested, the person who can pay their way out of jail, in other words, pay their bail amount, gets to be free, while the person who's too poor to pay has to stay in jail. So it's really across the spectrum. The whole criminal justice system is practically defined by the notion that the wealthier you are, the better off you are. And it's exactly the opposite of how our justice should be run. Definitely. And I feel like that's definitely true in person. Like, you know, you are maybe more familiar with the practice than the theories that sort of um, structured these laws. But what motivated you to start this project and why now? Well, there are a couple things that I saw. Before I was a lawyer, I was actually director of a homeless shelter in Boston. And our society is so unequal. You see extreme wealth right across the street from destitute poverty. We, we in some ways, have a very prosperous society, but that that wealth is not shared equally. And the bottom is very low in the society. So I was really hit hard, uh, even before becoming a lawyer, by seeing really big inequality gaps. Uh, I started out my legal career actually at the Civil Rights Division of the United States Department of Justice and was doing really exciting civil rights work, suing 
companies that were discriminating against people based on their national origin and immigration status. Um, but more and more, as I practiced law, I saw the inequality in the legal system, particularly when it came down to wealth status, was one of the biggest problems. Um, some of the examples I gave from forming counsel, even to sentencing, the poorer you are, the worse the system treats you. And so I started Equal Justice Under Law about three years ago uh, with the mission of ending wealth-based inequality in the justice system. That's fantastic. And uh, in a lot of people's minds today, as we look at police community relations and and other uh, criminal, you know, high-profile criminal justice issues, I think that uh, racial impacts on the criminal justice system is top of mind for a lot of people. How do you see the interplay between race and socioeconomics? And also, why do you think that uh, socioeconomics maybe isn't getting quite as much uh, attention out of curiosity? Yeah, I mean, I think there's both such interesting issues. Sadly, and really heartbreakingly in our society, the two overlap, right? Uh, Wealth status and, and, and racial demographics really connect. You see it in Detroit. You see it where we're based in Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. is a very segregated city, and the poor neighborhoods are also where the racial and ethnic minorities tend to live. And our society has not overcome racial inequality whatsoever. The reason we focus on wealth-based inequality, even though there is such a close connection, is because, again, unfortunately, the law creates a very, very high burden on, on racial uh, discrimination cases. Supreme Court has spoken on the issue many times and effectively proven that you need kind of the smoking gun to prove discriminatory intent by a state government if you have a race-based claim. Mm-hmm. Whereas wealth inequality is simply not acceptable in our justice system. Now, it happens a lot, um, but, the, but the Constitution and the precedent, the legal precedent on the issue has much less tolerance uh, for wealth-based inequality. So we hope that wealth-based inequality can be a more effective route to cleaning up so many of the injustices that we see in the criminal justice system. In terms of your question about why wealth inequality hasn't been the focus, I think that's because for so many people, racial identity is such an important issue. And there is, again, sadly, in our culture, still a lot of racial animus. Um, There's still a lot of, frankly, bigotry and hatred based on racial identity. And it's a serious problem. And so I think people are right to focus on that issue. I think from the legal perspective, we're trying to raise another angle, another perspective on the argument, and hopefully gain some traction in the courts. Right, definitely. And then um, flipping back to the class action lawsuit that was just filed, can you explain in layman's terms what this new court case is all about? Definitely. So last Thursday on May 4th, we filed a class action lawsuit. It's a statewide challenge to Michigan's driver suspension laws. What happens in Michigan is if you pick up a uh, traffic ticket, a a minor moving violation, you might get a $150 fine. If you can't pay it, not only does your fine increase because you get late fees and other fees added on to it, but eventually your license will be suspended. The Secretary of State's office will automatically suspend the license of anyone who hasn't paid their court debt after a certain period of time. There is no inquiry made into whether you were able to pay. So for folks who are totally unable to pay their court debt, they will see their court costs rise and their license be suspended. We think that system is effectively punishing people simply for being poor. The suspension of a driver's license is a basic right. Folks have a constitutional right to travel, and in Michigan, that right is being taken away from them. Mm, okay. Um, and what happens, out of, out of my own curiosity, just what happens when, if you can't pay the debt ever, if the amount is just more than uh, than you're able to pay? 
and you're simply not able to, to okay. pay the debt. Yeah, I'll give a couple answers to that. In Michigan, the license is suspended indefinitely. There's no way that Katia Harris, who's one of our clients, can get her license back unless either we win our lawsuit or she wins the lottery. Um, her only source of income is disability payments from Social Security. She's been, uh, she has a chronic disability, interstitial cystitis, which has rendered her unable to work. And she barely makes enough money through that to pay for herself and her daughter. She's a single mother living in Detroit. So uh, she's never going to get a license back. It's an indefinite suspension. And if she never pays it, the license never, never comes back to her. In other states, however, it's a different model. Other states will allow folks who are too poor to pay their court debt to go on a payment plan. And I've seen payment plans as low as $5 a month to someone if that's all they can afford. And really, frankly, that's a better system. $5 a month can be affordable for some folks. It's more than the $0 that Michigan is recouping. Um, other states have community service options. If someone can't pay their court debt, they might be able to work it off through community service. And this is a great way for someone to contribute to the state and actually save the state money. They might do a trash cleanup or clean up of a government office building, and the state can save that money from having to pay uh, to hire an employee to do that. Now. So there's a, there's a variety of mechanisms that other states use when folks are too poor to pay their court debt. But in Michigan, it's just an indefinite suspension of your license that could last the rest of your life. Hmm, definitely. And um, how did you meet the plaintiffs? And like, what inspired you to sort of craft this whole case around these ideas? Well, there's a couple things that I should say. One, our, our, our lawsuit really was inspired by the work of the Legal Aid Justice Center, which is a nonprofit based in Charlottesville, Virginia. And they challenged Virginia's driver's license suspension scheme, which is very similar to what's happening in Michigan a little over a year ago. They're a partner organization. We, we work really closely with them and, and really admire the work they do. And, and they're, they're based in Virginia. Um, we're a national organization. So we started looking around at other states to try to figure out uh, what other states were doing and, and if this problem was happening across the country. And we found a number of other states where it was happening. And frankly, Michigan was the worst. Um, thousands of folks in Michigan have had their license suspended because they're unable to pay court debts. The problem is huge in Michigan. It's compounded in Michigan because Michigan has one of the worst public transportation systems in the country, and Detroit has the worst public transportation system of any major city across the country. Uh, both, our, both of our clients, Katia Harris and Adrian, Adrian Fowler, live in Detroit, and they're simply unable to get around now. They've had their license suspended. So it was the scale of the problem that drew us to Michigan, and there's also some unique factors about uh, kind of Michigan's woeful state of public transportation that drew us there. Once we identified Michigan, we started reaching out to local advocacy groups, local nonprofits in the area to learn, had they, had, had they experienced this issue? Had, they, uh, had some of their clients experienced this problem? And we started hearing dozens and dozens of stories about uh, things that had happened. We actually connected with a group in Detroit called the Coalition on Temporary Shelter, COTS, uh, which does uh, services for women experiencing homelessness. And that led us to uh, both of our clients who had had their licenses. Very interesting. And I'm curious to know, what is the ideal outcome? So should the case be a complete success? What, what does success look like in a case like this? So I'll answer that in two ways. First, what it doesn't include, and a lot of folks have already uh, asked about this lawsuit, are these plaintiffs seeking money? Are they looking for a big payday? The answer is absolutely not. 
We're not seeking monetary relief in this case. Uh, these, these, these plaintiffs are not going to get any money out of filing this lawsuit. All they want is their license back. So success looks like, in the, and what the lawsuit seeks, is for everyone who's had their license suspended, simply for being unable to pay, to have that license returned to them, and in the future, for nobody to have their license suspended solely for that reason. We want, and also success includes this happening as soon as possible. We've asked for an immediate hearing on this issue. We filed a motion for a preliminary injunction on the same day we filed this lawsuit, and we hope the federal court takes a look at this within weeks. Um, we think every day that goes by where folks have their license suspended is a harm not just to those individuals but to the community, and we want to correct that. One thing I'll also flag is we're not talking about licenses that have been suspended because someone has too many DUIs or is a danger on the road or is a real menace behind the wheel. We're only challenging suspensions based on inability to pay court debt. Definitely. A lot of very like clear forward thinking, which is nice to hear coming from a place like you. And we're also wondering more specifically how wealth-based discrimination affects returning citizens. You know, it's a big, it's been a big impact in a number of ways. Every county operates differently, but returning citizens often have debt carried over from their criminal prosecution. So a lot of places will, will charge fees for a public defender, for example. A public defender is supposed to be court-appointed and free, but a lot of folks uh, have to pay for it. There can be fees from your jail time. Uh, if you're on parole, there may be a fees associated with that. And court debt in general is an ongoing concern for returning citizens is exacerbated in a state like Michigan where someone's license can be suspended for any unpaid court debt. So our clients have uh, court debt from traffic violations, but if there's any unpaid court debt for any reason, it could be a fine from uh, previous infraction, um, uh, the, the driver's license suspension can kick in. So wealth-based, the effects of wealth-based discrimination in the justice system don't end after someone's sentence is done. Any fees that remain, any, any court debts that are still owed can carry with someone long after they've finished serving their time, repaying their debt to society. When you say it's a constitutional right to, to get around, I, I don't remember the exact language you used, but I believe you said it's a, it's a right to be able to get around or, so, yeah. or to, to be able to travel around. Um, could you just elaborate on, on kind of where that comes from? Yeah, it's such an, it's such an interesting question. So it's, it really all comes out of the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment protects fundamental liberties. So liberty, of course, is a very vague term, and it's, uh, it's been elaborated by courts, frankly, over the, the centuries. Um, one of the basic rights that has been held to be captured by the 14th Amendment's guarantee of liberty under the law is the right to travel. Now, actually, different courts in different states have interpreted this right differently. Uh, in some states, the right to travel is simply the right to travel between states. Uh, the Supreme Court has spoken on the issue and said, well, everyone at least has the right to travel to the nation's capital, Washington, D.C., uh, which is an interesting point. Um, but it hasn't, it hasn't really further explicated the contours of the right to travel. In Michigan, the courts have said the right to travel includes traveling within the state. So uh, in, we call this intrastate travel. And what's happening under the suspension scheme is really that this right to travel intrastate within the state of Michigan is being taken away. It's a combination between the driver's suspension and the woeful public transportation system. I think arguably if Michigan had invested more in its public transportation system, then our case would be a more difficult one. Hmm. But I don't think we'll get any dispute 
that someone who has their license suspended in a city like Detroit effectively has any practical means of transportation taken away from them. One of our clients, Adrian Fowler, actually had to turn down a higher paying job because she couldn't get to that new job once her license was suspended. The bus routes in Detroit are very unreliable. Um, they don't serve most of the metro area, and especially if you want to take a job in the suburbs like Adrian had, um, you have to take multiple bus routes, which can involve multiple transfers. Transfer times can be over an hour. It's an unrealistic commuting option for someone who doesn't have a driver's license. We actually went on to Google Maps to try to compute commuting times, and what might be a 20-minute drive to work if you have a license could be over two and a half hours if you're relying on public transportation in Detroit. Mm. So this is an illustration of how the right to travel intrastate within the state is completely removed once your license is taken away in Michigan. Oh, please, another example you... actually comes from our other, our other clients, Tia Harris. She's a chronic uh, disability. She has interstitial cystitis, which prevents her from standing for long periods of time. So she literally cannot wait at the bus stop uh, mm. for that 30 minutes or an hour for that bus to come. It's, it's not physically possible for her to do so. So she really needs to drive. And what she's been doing as a result of having her license suspended is paying essentially for, for cab rides, essentially paying people to transport her to her medical appointments, uh, to transport her to uh, places she needs to get to. Got it. And, and just uh, I apologize for my own ignorance in terms of how the law works, but I think I read that it's a federal lawsuit in a state court, if I'm not mistaken. So I apologize for my, my poor understanding. But uh, should you guys yeah. win, win the case, are the are the impacts then, does it impact federal law or does it exclusively impact state law? And how, do, how does that aspect of it work? Well, I think this is actually an important um, separation. So I'm glad you asked that question. So the lawsuit is filed in federal court. It's challenging the state's laws under the federal constitution. So really what we're arguing is that Michigan's laws don't square with the 14th Amendment to the federal constitution. And it's going to be up to a federal court in Detroit, based in Detroit, to determine whether the federal constitution allows what Michigan is doing. If we win the case, the effects would be statewide, but the precedent could be felt across the country. Because it's a federal court hearing the issue, that court's interpretation of the federal constitution would be persuasive precedent for any other federal court in any other, in any other state across the country. Definitely. I feel like it's helpful to have sort of names and circumstances and experience to align with these things because it's really easy to group these people into, you know, some other, some isolated community. So it's really great to hear this in-depth um, process that you all are going through. Yeah, I should say that I, I've been uh, really appreciative of the response from folks in Michigan. Um, since we filed our lawsuit last week, uh, there's been a lot of folks who have reached out to our nonprofit to, to thank us for tackling the issue. And, and I'm, I'm very pleased that we've actually heard from a lot of other residents of Michigan who have been victims of these same practices, who have had their licenses suspended. And we love to hear that, even though it's a very sad state of affairs, because those are folks who want to help. And we're going to try to integrate as many folks as we can into this lawsuit. Again, we're not, we're not trying to get a payday for anyone. No one's seeking money out of this. We're just trying to get people's licenses back. And so when we realize how big the problem is, that um, can help add to our momentum in getting the court to take a look at this issue. We actually sent a FOIA request to the state of Michigan because we were trying to get a handle on how many people were affected by this problem of driver's license suspension. What we found in 2010 alone, in one year, 
over almost 400,000 people had had their license suspended for a variety of reasons. Now, it didn't break down whether, you know, to what extent those suspensions were based on inability to pay or not. Uh, so we don't have that precise number. But I wouldn't be at all surprised if more than 100,000 folks have had their license suspended solely because they're too poor to pay their traffic debt just in the state of Michigan alone. So this problem is pervasive. It's affecting thousands of people across the state. I think a huge percentage of them are right in the Detroit metro area. And we hope to get relief for everyone as the case progresses. That's that's really terrible. And I'm, I'm curious to know, uh, just in terms of the timeline, uh, so when you guys just filed the case, when should folks expect to, to see an update? And could you walk us through kind of what happens next? Definitely. It's, it's one of the most difficult things about our justice system. It's often said that justice delayed is justice denied. That's really true in this case, because every day and week that goes by when someone can drive is a real impediment to their family, to their employment, to their ability to care for uh, dependent relatives, to tend to their own basic necessities. So we want relief as quickly as possible. We're still waiting to hear from the Secretary of State's office about their position in the case. They have an obligation under the law to file their position, their response, within 21 days. So we should hear within a couple of weeks what their response is. Now, my hope is the Secretary of State will understand that Michigan can do better, that there's a more sensible outcome in this case, and that they will brainstorm with us ways to improve the system. Uh, but it's also possible that they will oppose the lawsuit, that they'll defend the state's laws. If that happens, uh, we hope the case is set for a hearing as soon as possible. We want a preliminary hearing on this po- on this issue, ideally within a few weeks. Federal court cases, unfortunately, often take much longer than that. Um, so it could be months before any substantive action is taken. But uh, from our perspective, the faster a court can look at this issue, the better. Got it. And, and just to aid my own understanding here in terms of when you approach a, a civil rights case like this, um, obviously you guys are fighting on the, on the side of the courts, but I'm, I'm curious if there's any efforts to pressure lawmakers to, to address this uh, as well. Yeah, I think there will be. Uh, so we're a very small nonprofit, and our focus, as you say, is in the courts. Uh, that's where our work comes. But we've seen our lawsuits inspire legislators to take on legislative change, and I think that would be appropriate in Michigan. Often legislation can happen quicker than litigation. The courts tend to be slow. We want this court process to go quickly, but there's no guarantee of any particular pace. So if the legislature takes up action on the issue, that could be equally effective. And either route could solve the problem. They don't need to both happen, but one or the other could be a route to change because it's really the state laws that need to be changed, whether it happens by the court or the legislature. Another thing I'll add is you know, we're, we're a legal nonprofit. You know, we do courtroom advocacy. But at the end of the day, what really matters is the so-called court of public opinion. The people of Michigan are going to have to think about what kind of system do they want in place. You know, driving suspensions may make sense for people who are a real threat on the road, um, who are who have committed multiple DUIs or things like that. That, that might be an appropriate time for suspending someone's driver's license. But simply being too poor to pay court debt, in our view, doesn't make any sense. And, and it's really, you know, the theme of, of your podcast, I think, is really correct. We're looking for solutions that benefit everyone. And we see our lawsuit as a win-win. I mean, at the end of the day, what we're saying and what our clients are saying is, Michigan, we want to be better able to pay back the court debt, right? 
We want what you want. I mean, Michigan's goal is to get their court debt repaid. And by suspending people's driver's licenses, they're making it harder for folks to repay their court debt. They're effectively creating a cycle of poverty. You know, I talked about Adrian having to turn down a higher-paying job because of the suspended license. Someone keeping a, a job is harder when you don't have a driver's license. Things get more expensive, like like Katia Harris having to pay for rides, having to pay for caps to get plates. All of a sudden, transportation gets much more expensive. So Michigan is making life a lot harder for a lot of people who are simply living in poverty rather than making it easier for them to repay their court debt. We really think our lawsuit is kind of seeking a win-win. We can get the state some of the payments that it wants by making life easier and making folks who are poor better able to pay their court debt. Well, we're extremely thankful uh, over here at The Returning Citizen uh, that you guys are doing this incredible, incredibly important work. Um, Imani and I both live in the city of Detroit, um, and we know that uh, transit is particularly top of mind for, for lots of people in Detroit, but Wayne County and the region in general, the regional transit master plan the regional transit master plan was voted down at the end of last year, which was an opportunity for Michigan at large to really double down and invest in a sensible regional transit plan uh, over the next 20 years. And it lost uh, by a narrow margin. So uh, folks are, are frustrated. It's it's on the top top of minds for, for a lot of people. Uh, I imagine a lot of our listeners. Um, and just a reminder that all of these uh, links to information that we discussed and organizations we discussed are all going to be in the description of the podcast. So I want to turn it back to uh, Phil here. Anything that we uh, that we missed that you'd like to to let the people know, Phil? Or one of the points I'll add, just just from the national perspective, actually, to the point you made about returning citizens, is we we have seen some of these fines and fees come into play on expungement issues. Um, when when states require people to pay for expungements of their records. And then, of course, if you're too poor to pay that amount, you end up having to carry your record longer than someone who could afford to pay it. So hmm. yet another example of, of, of inequality. And on the public transportation issue, I think that's such an important cause in Detroit. That's one of the things that this case has really highlighted to me the importance of public transportation. Washington, D.C. has a a decent public transportation system. I use it exclusively. Uh, I don't own a car in Washington, and that can work in a place like Washington, D.C., but it's clearly not practical in Detroit, and for whatever set of reasons, folks have not decided to invest in it uh, on a statewide level. And, you know, I I truly hope some additional thinking and, and work can be done on the issue because it's the kind of thing that makes life better for everyone. It's not just for the users. When someone's able to work, to contribute to society, to get around, that's a community benefit. It helps everyone. So uh, I'm really glad about the issues you and your listeners are focusing on. It's, it's such important work. Sure. And um, speaking about the community, is there any way for people to just get involved if they want to learn more or get updates from the work that you all are doing? Yes. Uh, there's definitely ways to get updates. We uh, will keep this case in particular updated on our website, and folks can sign up for our mailing list. We send out updates about the work we're doing, and it's on our website, equaljusticeunderlaw.org. And I think the best way, and I, and I really mean this, that folks can kind of help support this case in particular, is by raising awareness, by talking about uh, what exactly Michigan is doing. Because, as I said earlier, I think what our lawsuit is seeking is a win-win something that's better for the people of Michigan, but also something that's better for the state of Michigan. And the more people talk about this, I think the more solutions will come to mind, the more alternatives will come to mind, and eventually Michigan will get something in place that actually works rather than trapping 
so many thousands of people in a cycle of poverty. So I think keeping the awareness up, keeping the conversation going, signing up on the Equals of Center Law website, all of these things can help keep the momentum rolling on an important issue. Perfect. Thank you so much for speaking with us today, and thank you for your continued work. It's been really great to learn more about you and what you're working on. Well, thank you both uh, for what you're doing. I really enjoyed being on the show. We'll, we'll have to uh, have you back on to, to give us an update whenever there's a uh, substantial jump in the in the case here. I, I will keep both of you and would love to keep all of your listeners aware of uh, how the case develops. Perfect. Thank you so much, Phil. We really appreciate you joining us, and uh, we will talk with you soon. All righty. Thank you so much. Have a great day.